The Christian life is a result of Christian belief. You cannot live like a Christian without being a Christian. We can't live like Christ without the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us, transforming us to be like Jesus. Belief behaves. Belief acts. Genuine faith produces verbs. If you go through Hebrews chapter 11, you will see over and over again, by faith so-and-so did so-and-so. By faith so-and-so did so-and-so. So faith and did go together. Faith produces verbs. So being a Christian is to believe that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead to save us. That's the beginning. That's the essence of what it is to be a Christian. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to see what we can glean from this chapter. But before we begin, I want to go with you to the end of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. The last thing Paul said in that chapter was, therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore. It's there because all of the things that he has told us about the resurrection, about what's coming for believers in the future. He says, knowing all of this, therefore, my beloved brethren. So he's speaking to believers. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, the verb tense here says that we ought to keep becoming steadfast, that we ought to keep becoming more and more immovable, that we will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. It is an instruction of Christian growth. We are to be growing. We are to keep growing. And as long as we live on this earth, we should continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 16, Paul doesn't really teach us or exhort us so much. Last time we looked in the first part of the chapter about giving, about offerings for other churches, for other believers. But he doesn't really exhort us anymore, but we get a huge amount of insight from the work about the work of the Lord from Paul's example. And so we're going to mine this gold mine. We're going to glean what he has here for us because what he is basically speaking about is the work of the Lord. And his example is woven all through the rest of this chapter. We can look at the life of Jesus and see that the work of the Lord has a basic foundation of two things, evangelizing and edifying. Evangelizing and edifying. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man, he himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then throughout his ministry, he taught his disciples the beginning of the book of Acts tells us that even in the 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension, he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
We are kingdom people and we are to be about kingdom business. And so all throughout Jesus' ministry, he was either preaching to the lost or teaching the saved. Preaching to the lost or edifying, building up the saved. And so think of the Great Commission. What was the last thing Jesus said? Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go ye, therefore, you go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all of the things that I have commanded you. So there's the Great Commission. Evangelize and teach. Evangelize and edify. Well, we saw Paul say here in verse 58, when we do the work of the Lord, our toil is not in vain. It, it has value. It will not be useless or unproductive. We've talked some about the judgment seat of Christ, knowing that all of our works will be tested by fire and those things that are valuable will stay. Those things that are wood, hay, and stubble will be uh, demolished. They'll be burned up. So doing the Lord's work the Lord's way is building with gold and silver and precious stones. That's what we saw in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking about dedicated spiritual service to the Lord. This is important to us to consider today because it is so easy to let activity be a substitute for God's work. The work of the Lord, what is it? Founded on evangelism and teaching, evangelism and edifying. It may not just be teaching. There are other ways to encourage and build one another up in the Lord. So when our work is done in the flesh, we tend to do that today according to our own opinions. This is what I think needs to be done. These are my personal preferences and I wind up wanting to put my personal preferences onto somebody else. And you know, we want it worship to be convenient. So we've got all of these ideas ourselves about what this ought to be like and what we're going to like. Well, we have to be careful because even though we say we do it in the Lord's name, we must watch to see. I'm sorry. We say we do it in the Lord's name. We, watch to, we must watch to see if we're doing it in vain. How do we tell? Does it bear fruit? Does it bear fruit? So we evaluate the fruitfulness of our work and we hold it before the Lord to see if it's done in His way and if it is truly His work. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 16 here and I'm going to read verses 5 through 12. 5 through 12. Paul says, But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, 
but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So he continues. Now, what can we see here? What can we learn from Paul ex Paul's example? Look at verse five. What did he say? I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Number one, Paul is planning ahead. He's planning ahead. He has a vision for the future. Remember that Paul wrote this letter toward the end of his three-year stay in Ephesus. He had a plan. And even while he was busy in Ephesus, he was planning what he needed to do next. He was not content resting on what he had already accomplished. We see a lot of foresight. He always knew there were more souls to be saved and more believers to be edified and encouraged. He constantly looked for where he needed to begin his next ministry. It has been characteristic of God's great people to have a vision and to be ready, to have a vision and to be ready. Um, even near the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentioned that after he visited Rome, he planned to go to Spain. Uh, historians think that the gospel had not yet reached Spain and Paul wanted to go. He wanted to go and preach the gospel there. Nehemiah in the Old Testament had a plan and a purpose in mind to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He had prayed earnestly that God would allow him to do the work and that he would open the doors to get him there, that he would make the provision that Nehemiah would need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He had a plan. He knew what was ahead. William Carey is called the father of modern Protestant missions. He became a missionary to India and he spent 41 years there. When he was working as a cobbler in England, he, he is said to have placed a, a world map in front of his workbench. And as he worked, he thought and prayed and wept about what all needed to be done in the whole world. He prepared himself. He waited. He prayed. He planned. He prepared. And when the opportunity came, he was ready to go. How much work do you suppose the Lord has for his people to do? But there are few who have the vision and the readiness to do it. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's his example here. We need to have the mindset of planning and preparation, even if we don't know what or where the opportunity is going to be. Verse six, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Number two, Paul was flexible. His plans were always subject to the Lord's revising them. We've studied the life of Paul. We've seen Paul's missionary journeys, and we know that he always had a plan, but we have seen the Lord in Scripture in the life of Paul interrupt what Paul thought he was going to do next. 
Sometimes our original understanding of God's will may not be exactly correct or exactly complete. God doesn't always tell us everything at the beginning. We walk with him day by day, one step at the time. And so sometimes his plans may change. James chapter four and verse 15 says, we should always say, the Lord willing, we shall do this or do that. We have clues about what to do based on our spiritual gifts, uh, based on our talents, based on our desires. God will give us a want to. He will give us a vision. He will give us a desire to do something. But it is possible that God may choose to use us in ways that we never imagined. And so our focus, our eyes need to be kept on Him. We need to constantly be listening to Him. We must not let our plans make us insensitive to the leadership or the call of the Holy Spirit on our lives. We have plans, but we constantly hold them before the Lord to see if he makes adjustment, wants to make adjustment. William Carey said two things. First thing I want to tell you, he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was his mindset when he was praying over the map of the world. That's what he was thinking. Another thing he said was to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. What is it that you want, Lord? Show me what to do. All of his life, David Livingston wanted to be a missionary in China, but God sent him to Africa. And he opened up that whole continent to mission work. Even though he wasn't where he wanted to go, even though he wasn't where he planned, He served willingly. He served without reservation. And there was fruit, incredible fruit from the ministry of David Livingston because he was obedient to the Lord. He wanted to do the Lord's work more than he wanted to go to China. And so he was willing to be clay in the hands of the potter. So These are adaptable. They're listening. They're watching. Paul ends verse six with that. You may send me on my way wherever I go. He wanted the Corinthians encouragement. He wanted their equipping. He wanted their support wherever the Lord sent him. He knew that he needed them to be praying for him, to know that he was there, to keep connected with him, regardless of where the Lord sent him. Then verses seven and eight. He says, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul was thorough in his work. He didn't leave work undone. He had spent a year and a half establishing and pastoring the church at Corinth. And he knew that this letter was only the beginning of correcting all of their errors and all of their solving all of their problems and answering all of their questions. And so he says, if possible, I really want to spend the winter with you because he knew it would take that long. He wanted to teach them everything he could with every opportunity that he had. Let me show you Colossians for just a second. Uh, Colossians chapter one. Let's just read two or three things that will give us more perspective about this. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, 29, the great teacher K. Arthur would say General Electric Power Company. That's the way she remembered Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. Look what Paul says here. He says, and we proclaim him, we announce him, warning or admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Look at 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, as, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. He's thorough. He's thorough. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. Acts 20. 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's not leaving any stones unturned. He's thorough in his teaching. He's thorough in his work. Regardless of how much time he spent in each place that he traveled, his, the time was characterized by thoroughness. He used the time that he had. He had told the Ephesians, to make the most of their time over in chapter 5 and verse 16. And he practiced that himself. He used his time wisely and he was thorough in what he did. We must always be willing to thoroughly prepare and work diligently for any work that the Lord has given to us. Being thorough, being complete. You see that he said he would remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because he hadn't finished what he needed to do there. He marked the time and he knew he needed to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost, but he says, I'm going to stay here. I need to use this time and finish what I need to do here before I go to Pentecost. Jesus said that a person who is faithful in a little thing is faithful also in much. That's Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. In Matthew 25, 23, he said, Well done, good and faithful slave, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put in you in charge of many things. The Lord accepts our faithfulness in little things. And when he sees that we're going to be faithful in those things, then he's going to reward us by giving us many things to do. Becoming a faithful servant of the Lord doesn't begin with some great opportunity, some great invitation. It begins with faithfulness and good work for him in the small things, in our daily lives, and what we do in the routine things that he has given to us to do every day. If we don't give him our best where we are, then there's no indication that we would be faithful in something big. So he measures our faithfulness by how faithful we are in the routine, on a daily basis, in the small things. 
verse 9. He says, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's an intriguing verse to me. I tend to avoid adversity. Paul accepted opposition as a challenge rather than a hindrance. And Satan is going to see to it that ministry is challenged. He's going to do it. It is his plan to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It would be his preference to eliminate all ministry from the earth. And so he is going to see to it that any work of the Lord is challenged. G. Campbell Morgan said, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. Opposition did not intimidate Paul. He used it to see what he needed to be doing. Perhaps the devil's greatest opposition is to the Lord's greatest work. And sometimes when we see what Satan is opposing, that's a clue to us for where God wants to be working, for what it is he wants to accomplish. Paul says here that there were many adversaries of the gospel in Ephesus. He took that to mean that a wide door for effective service had been opened up. Uh, think about Ephesus for just a minute. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis. Some people call the goddess Diana. Uh, one was Greek, one was um, Roman. And so Artemis was the most sought after god goddess in Asia. The worship of Artemis was the city's means of economic survival. Silversmiths made their uh, living selling images of the goddess in her temple. And there was this system of organized idolatry. Ritual prostitution, sexual perversion were not only tolerated, they were promoted by religion in the name of religion. And so the city was just full of the occult, of demonism, racism, uh, one group against another, there was huge direct opposition to the church in Ephesus. So Paul is saying what? I need to stay here a while longer. He is addressing that adversarial attitude, that culture that was there. Look for just a second. You're close to it at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, Paul is writing about his experience in Ephesus. Asia here is the Roman province in which Ephesus was located. So when you see him Describe this, he's saying this is what was going on in Ephesus. Affliction, burdened excessively beyond our strength. We despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so what's he said? He's saying, I'm going to stay here a while longer. I'm going to stay here a while longer. 
Paul didn't consider opposition as something not to be concerned about. He knew the danger of the opposition, but he also knew the faithfulness of the Lord in protecting him and getting him where he needed to get when he needed to get there. And so he didn't underestimate it. He never underestimated the potential danger and the persecution, but neither did he run from it. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 20, we're told that in spite of the fierce opposition, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now think about that. You've got this culture that seems to be winning. You've got these people going to the temple of Artemis to worship and to perform indecent acts as a part of their religion. You've got people selling little idols, little, little silver things of the temple and perhaps even of the goddess herself. And so all of that's going on. The culture is surrounded by it. it, it they're, they're in it all the time. And right there in the middle of that, what? The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You don't hear about that on the news. We're in terrible times in this country, but there are places in this country, I promise you, where the word of the Lord is growing mightily and prevailing. One of the places that you can, one of the ways you can identify where that's happening is where the worst stuff's going on. Because I assure you, God has people in those cities and he is working in those places. And we need to pray for them. And we need to watch out for those places where we can participate in evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. Foundational to the Lord's work. Now, something happened here uh, that Paul called a wide door of effective service. So even in the midst of those horrible cultural situations, Paul sees an effective door of service. And he says, you know what? I need to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And he did. Then in verse 10. <clears throat> now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. What's Paul doing here? He's using teamwork. He's using teamwork. He worked closely with other believers in whatever he did, men and women. And he never proceeded as a superstar. I mean, can you imagine working alongside the Apostle Paul? It would be easy to be intimidated by that presence. You know, but he didn't think that way. The people that worked with him didn't think that way. Why? Because their eyes were on Jesus. They were not on each other. And so Paul never lorded over others. Um, Paul seemed concerned that the Corinthians would not give proper attention to Timothy. Remember, he was young, perhaps somewhat inexperienced, but Timothy was God's servant. And Paul is trusting him as his fellow worker. And he's teaching the people how to respond to Timothy. He's teaching Timothy to walk on, even if he might be afraid. Now, the Corinthians were not to intimidate or frustrate him. So Paul is kind of building a wall of 
protection around him in a sense. They were to treat him with respect. Um, we're not to lord over one another. In some places, I, I think control sometimes gives us a sense of um, security. When we think we can control something or somebody, then we can always have it the way we like it. The Lord Jesus said, don't you do that. That's not to be done in the body of Christ. Look at verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Paul was sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other believers. Here again, Paul is not lording it over Apollos. Look at, look at Acts chapter 18 for just a minute, and let's remember who Apollos was. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So what are they doing? They took him aside to tell him more than the baptism of John. What did they know? They knew the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Paul thought that Apollos should accompany the brethren to Corinth. There were some people coming to Corinth and Paul thought Apollo should come with him. He encouraged him greatly, Scripture says, to come. But Paulus was, Apollos was convinced that the Lord wanted him to stay in Ephesus a while longer. And so Paul respected his convictions. He let the Holy Spirit lead Apollos. And Apollos would go to Corinth, Paul says, and Paul knew, whenever and if the Lord led him to go to Corinth. God's workers must work as a team. This is kingdom living. The Holy Spirit calls the plays. He gives the instruction. And we then must know how to recognize the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then we need to aid and support, encourage one another in that leading. We need to give each other the freedom to do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do, even if we have a different preference or a different opinion. Paul did that. Now, what can we apply here? Number one, we must be growing. We must be growing and being steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord rests on a foundation of two basic things, 
evangelism, and edifying. Winning the lost, teaching the lost, preaching to the lost, and encouraging and building up the saved. He's saying to us, be settled. Be settled and unwavering in your belief in the resurrection. That's what he's been talking about. That's the context. That's what we've learned all through chapter 15. He says, you need to cling to that. You need to be secure and settled in that belief. And then what happens is faith produces courage. Faith produces courage. You know what it is when your faith or your love for something um, drives you to do something that you might be afraid to do? Um, I'm thinking of a mother who is afraid of the water going into a pool to rescue a drowning child. We're driven to do that. It overcomes our fear. That's when faith overcomes that fear. And so he's saying, be firm in God's truth and be stable in Christ. That's where we're going to be immovable. In what God's word tells us about Christ and about how to live. That's what he says. He says, this is, this is what I want from the kingdom. This is the instruction manual for the kingdom of God. And he said, when you do that, you will be abounding in the work of the Lord. You will abound in the work of the Lord. Secondly, in summary, he says, have a vision for the future. Have a plan. Be looking ahead. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road. You don't need to look just immediately in front of you. You need to look about 50 yards on down the road to see what's coming up later. And he says, you need to, you need to be thinking about what's going to be happening, what's coming ahead. You need to have a vision for the future and plan ahead. Number three, you need to be flexible. Be flexible. Always be ready for the Lord to revise his plans for you. He may do that. He may not have told you the whole thing. Um, God's never fooled by anything, but sometimes um, our experiences change and things can happen that make God tell us something different. So be flexible. Number four, be thorough. Be thorough. Make the most of your time. Make the most of your time. Read all the way to the end of the sentence. Finish the book, okay? Be thorough. Be thorough in the things of the Lord. Don't be slapstick and careless. These are important things. It is the work of the Lord. Number five, use teamwork. Use teamwork. Work closely with other believers. Don't lord over anyone. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. So what are we going to do? We can encourage one another. We can pray for one another, help one another, build up one another, but not demand of one another what is our opinion. We can encourage in the work of the Lord. First Peter chapter five, verse three says the same thing. Don't be lording it over those allotted to your charge. Don't be lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. Proving to be examples of the flock. 
Number six, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in you and in others. Sometimes the best way to know what the Lord is saying to us is to have the counsel of other believers. Sometimes we may think we know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, but not be really sure. What a precious blessing it is to have people in your life who are not going to lord over you, who are not going to force their opinions over you, but who are going to pray with you and help you discern what the will of the Lord is for you in a certain situation. They will encourage you, but, but it's, it's of great importance to know what God's word says when we're seeking God's will, to know what the conviction of our heart is, and then to have the confirmation of other believers. That helps us tremendously in assuring that we're understanding what it is that the Lord wants us to do. Those are the examples that Paul set in these verses. And then he goes on beginning in verse 13 to give five final commands to the Corinthians. And we'll take those up next time. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, we just can't be grateful enough for your word and for the opportunity to mine it as gold and to glean it as the finest of wheat. Feed our spirits with it. Give us instruction by it. Give us the encouragement and edification we need. It's all here. You've said that everything is here that we need for life and godliness. So would you give us understanding and the desire to do your will? Let us get better and better at recognizing the leadership of the Holy Spirit and let us be faithful to put that as priority over all other things. We thank you so much for the Apostle Paul and for his example. And so would you go with us now and feed us and help us to apply in our daily lives these principles that you have taught us in 1 Corinthians 16. And I'm so grateful to pray in the high and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.